This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Yo, what's up? Podcast people, how are you? Good to see you on YouTube. Good to see you on our podcast channels. Maybe you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I don't know, but thanks for being here. On this episode of the podcast, I interviewed Caroline Sumlin. She wrote the book, We'll All Be Free, How a Culture of White Supremacy Devalues Us and How We Can Reclaim Our True Worth. This book is out now. This was a fascinating and helpful conversation, understanding white supremacy, how it affects everything, and also how white supremacy is not limited to just skin color. And I'll let Caroline explain that in the interview. I really appreciate her making time and coming on. Her book, like I said, is available everywhere. You can follow Caroline on all the social media. So buckle up. This conversation might punch you in the gut, but it's necessary work. And of course, as always, thank you for watching or listening to this podcast. If you like our work and want to support the work that we do, you can share this episode. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You could even tell your friends, hey, if you want to learn more about white supremacy, check out this podcast. That would help us out so much. And we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people as they navigate a better path forward from their evangelical fundamentalist heritage, which means if you want to support the work that we do financially, you can donate. All donations are tax deductible. We do nothing behind any kind of paywall. This content is all paywall free. There's no Patreon account. There's no secret access to our stuff. And the reason we're able to do that and help people without requiring financial obligations from them is because people like you donate with your generosity. We are also completely financially transparent, friends, which means you can go to our website and see our most recent profit and loss statement so you can see where all the money goes. We're not here to be disingenuous or to try and hoard money behind some kind of secret you know, account. It's all public information. So that being said, last thing I will say is we are getting really close to Theology Beer Camp. I know I've been talking about it a lot, but I'm telling you, if you want help and you want to experience better ways forward in your faith, make the trip out to Missouri. You'll meet me, Noah, some amazing podcasters. Pete Enns will be there. Dr. Adam Clark will be there. I've interviewed him several times. And of course, Trip Fuller will be there with some surprise, some surprise musical guests, including... 
I think I, I could say this now, Derek Webb, which will be amazing. So go to the link in our bio, use TNE GodPod as a promo code to get a discount on your ticket, and I will see you in Missouri. All right, friends, enjoy this interview with Caroline. Talk to you all later on. All right. Hi, everyone. Hello, Caroline. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. A hundred percent. You wrote a book called We'll All Be Free, How a Culture of White Supremacy Devalues Us and How We Can Reclaim Our True Worth. It has come out in July of this year, so it's available now wherever books are sold because we're going to post this after we do you know, the live recording. So at the time of this being aired, it will be available for everyone to buy. I'm really intrigued by this conversation, by the book that 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 you wrote and, and you know, kind of what, what it's about. Before we do, I love to hear from my guests kind of their backstory. I mean, you know, how did you grow up? Did you grow up in the church, in the white church, in the black church? What was that experience like for you? And then what led you to writing this book? Because writing a book is not a simple task. You have to be really passionate about something. So how did you get there? You are the first person to ask me for such an in-depth backstory. Um, so I grew up in the Minneapolis-St. Paul surrounding area, um, and I did grow up going attending a black church. I lived in a suburb of St. Paul, um, kind of a in in that area. If you're from the area, it's a well-known suburb of St. Paul, um, but it's a very um, predominantly white area. I mean, first of all, this is Minnesota and Minnesota is not void of, of black people or people of color, but it is one of those states that has a lower population than say Georgia, for example, or Illinois, right? Or, you know, Chicago area. So, um, in the suburbs of St. Paul, where I was from, pretty predominantly white, I would say like now it's probably a population of like maybe 10% black people. But when I was growing up, the population was probably like 5%. So it's grown, but you can kind of put into context there. Like every single one of my classes um, in schools, every all of my classmates besides like one or two and in the entire school, I'm not just talking about in a classroom, but like in the entire school throughout elementary and middle school were black. Um, when I got to high school, it increased a little bit more, but for the most part, elementary, middle school were, were I'm sorry, we're white. I'm sorry. Rewind no that. Problem. We're white. Yes. My bad. Um, and uh, there's one, one, two of us were black in the entire school. I never saw a black teacher until I went to university, which was Howard University in Washington, D.C. I went to an HBCU for that reason. Um, however, on the flip side, my mom raised me to be very pro-black, black-centric, things of that nature. So while I was you know, living a suburban life in the school system and like Girl Scouts and just the other little things I was doing... I was I attended one of the oldest um, black churches in St. Paul, um, Minnesota, which is really cool to be a part of that history. Um, yeah. And I also did a lot of other activities that were, you know, for black kids. Um, it, some black listeners out there might might recognize Jack and Jill. <laughs> um, I was in Jack and Jill of America, so that was a prominent organization. Um, and then I I left the Twin Cities. I went to Howard University in Washington D.C. Like I said, an HBCU. I really wanted to kind of find my blackness, so to speak. I kind of had a little bit of an identity crisis there. I, my family, my family is an HBCU family. So it was very much like, you know, very pushed, like you got to go to an HBCU, Caroline, you just got to go, you got to get out of, you know, 
Minnesota and just kind of go explore and, and find out what that's like. And I'm so yeah. glad I did. And I actually um, still reside in the DC area. So I never went back oh. to the Twin Cities, although I wish I had gone back home sometimes. But um, I now live in the DC area. And my background from there is even a little bit more all over the place. Um, I started off as a journalism major. I thought I was going to take over the world and be the next, you know, anchor on the Today Show. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, I sure. went into teaching for five years. So I taught special education in DC public schools. Um, and, uh, that is actually what I will say probably started to really, between my experiences at Howard and teaching in DC public schools, really began to formulate kind of the work that I'm doing now without me really noticing it, right? Um, from teaching in Title I schools, seeing the inequities in a school a school system as far as resources are concerned, as far as expectations of children based mm. off of socioeconomic status and racial demographics and things of that nature, seeing the disparities um, between just across the river in Virginia um, and, and the school systems out there, et cetera, which is um, where I where I am and, and was living at the time. Um, mm. So kind of being able to see all of that. And of course, you know, being at Howard University and learning truthful history, right? Aside from what I had been taught in school, learning my truthful black history um, and, and realizing so much that I hadn't already, uh, that mm. kind of formulated, you know, kind of the way that I began to see the world, see the inequities, formulate my activism, what was what mattered to me. Um, of course, never thought that I would end up writing a book in this nature, in this magnitude. But I think that's where like the the seeds began to be planted. Um, after teaching for five years, I took some time off. I had my second child. And so I was just kind of, it was in the middle of the pandemic as well. So I just kind of, you know, just stopped like the rest of the world did and and was like, okay, here I am being a mom. Right. What What's right. next? Um, yeah. But in the midst of that, um, you know, with, with the murder of George Floyd and everything. And then a year later with the January 6th insurrection, um, I, I kind of had an, I don't know if awakening is the right word because it was, it was more so things that had already been inside of me that I was always afraid to speak out, so to speak, so to speak. So I've, I've always been a Christian. And while I was raised in the black church, when I was at Howard was when I really began to I'm sorry, I'm going to back up for a second. This is an important thing to say. When I was at Howard, um, I began to really know Jesus for myself. And that was still black church. But then when I graduated from Howard, I found a church that was not black. It was multi, um, you know. Ethnic. Eth sure. Yes. Yes. That's a lot of quotes there. But multi-ethnic, yeah. <laughs> but white ran white evangelical that I didn't know at the time, white evangelical church. See, I'm coming from the black church background. I didn't know, I had no idea what evangelism was or evangelicalism was. I know evangelism, excuse me, evangelicalism. I didn't know what fundamentalism was. I had never heard these concepts before. I had never heard what this was. I didn't realize that there was this like dominant approach to Christianity that was completely outside of my norm because I was used to hearing sermons about justice and about activism and about the black experience growing up. And I always just thought the white church was just very quiet and still and just sang a hymn and then went home. But I didn't realize just the magnitude and the depths of the beliefs and the theology of white evangelicalism. But I was, I be, got, I became immersed in that culture thinking to myself, this is the better way to do church. Not realizing I'm thinking that because I'm, I'm idolizing whiteness and I'm idolizing and had always had an, had an idolization of whiteness. So that's an important part to add there. We come to 2020 and I had already begun to realize that something wasn't right, had a conversation with my husband. We left our church. Um, and a lot of things that had been 
in this the deep the depths of my spirit began to bubble out i began to do some teaching some educating online my own research and that led to my book um mainly because i wanted answers for why black people were viewed as the scum of the earth so to speak and i always wondered that in my own identity as a black woman i in my own history i never got that why i never answered that question i never figured that out like what was it and in my research i realized oh my goodness this is not just this goes beyond systemic racism this is about a culture of white supremacy that is not only oppressed and marginalized people of color but has actually impacted every single person that especially in the western in the western world um globally as well but especially in the western world it impacts every single one of us and has essentially worked to dehumanize us you know generation after generation and so that's that realization and that epiphany essentially is what brought this book to be wow. whoa <laughs> sorry how do you lot. feel <laughs> <laughs> you got it all out and that's helpful Context is really important, right? People don't write books in vacuums and mm -hmm. the person behind the pages, it's important to know, important to understand like, okay, this is the experience of Caroline and this is what drove you to eventually write this book. And there's a lot here. I mean, I feel like we can pull any one of these threads for the next hour. I do kind of have a question and we'll, we'll get back to some of these other ones, but you mentioned that as you were teaching, I believe in DC, you, you started seeing the, um, the inequity and the, and the inequality in the school districts. This is interesting to me because I think a lot of people, I was homeschooled and I went to a small private school in most of my life. So I never went to public school. And I think that as a white evangelical, I just always thought that, you know, oh, the days of, you know, racism and inequality in schools are kind of over. But can you maybe talk about like what you saw when you were actually teaching in these schools, some of those inequalities and give some examples? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you're you teach in a Title I school district. It's I mean, it's the norm for the majority of your students to be um to be living in some sort of poverty or living, you know, barely above the the poverty line, so to speak. Um sorry, can I yeah. ask I hate to interrupt. What what is Title One? I haven't I don't even know what that is. Oh, personally. I'm sorry. So no, that, that's that's okay. So typically Title I schools are schools that serve um, underserved communities. So they're typically going to be neighborhoods of color. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a neighborhood of color, but as we see with systemic racism and things of that nature, socioeconomic you know, um, uh, disparities, we see, unfortunately, the predominance in, um, quote unquote, like the inner city is typically people of color, yeah. right? All of right. that being constructed on purpose. And that, you know, that, that we know throughout history, but that's what we see. That's what, that's the, that's the result of all of that, um, constructing of, of between redlining and, um, and other ordinances that, that it occurred to ensure that they funneled all the black people into one area and then stripped them of resources. And essentially, you know, now we have what we have. So, um, in an area like that, we have, you know, mostly students, um, predominantly, predominantly black students, like most of the schools are I would say 98% black um, in like 1% white and 1% like maybe other people of color. Um, and we have a lot of students who, like I said, are living below the poverty line or living at the poverty line, have experienced a lot of trauma, a lot of abuse, um, don't know when their next meal is coming from, live in low-income housing or live in even um, uh, government-provided subsidized um, like apartment buildings that are um, like essentially not rent-free, but they're they're very um, low to like uh, a low payment to live there, um, and 
a lot of these children are essentially raising themselves, raising their siblings because parents are working two and three jobs or whatever the case may be. Now, it's not always the case because in, 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 within all of that, I still saw the most, the strongest family units. I saw, you know, the most dedicated parents. I saw students who felt like they were living in a world that they knew wasn't set up for them. They, 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 the lack of wanting to, to care about their education a lot of the times came from why should I because I'm not going to make it out of here I'm not going to like the college for for them felt like it, like that that's never going to happen like they're, that's so out of reach I don't I shouldn't even attempt for that like I see mm. what happens to adults around me and I know that's where I'm headed so kind of why try yet mm. these are just again these are just they're, they're kids, they're humans, they're no different than anybody else. It's just what's been handed to them and what's been fed to them. It's the, we don't believe in you. We don't think we're highly of you because we're showing you in the way that we treat the, the, um, certain classes of our, of our society. So those are the kinds of things that I was seeing. And in teaching in those schools requires you to really have a, a cultural understanding and training um, to be able to show those children that even if what you see is that this society doesn't care about you, we're going to show them and prove otherwise. And and it's it's a very rewarding experience to teach in Title I schools. I, I absolutely loved my time there, as, as challenging as it was. And you also have schools, again, that are, you know, pretty um, pretty much underfunded. Um, so, you know, you see all the resources that go towards the schools in the suburbs, and that's for a couple of reasons, not just the government, but it's also because when you funnel the socioeconomic statuses to be the, you know, the more wealthy people living in the suburbs and the more poor people living in the in the city, then people that have, the, the, the parents that have the more resources and, and ability to, to take their money and actually also pour into schools end up having more resources, or you have certain tax brackets and you have more tax money coming in to the those schools and all those things are done on purpose, right? So across the across town, you may have schools where every single kid is getting an iPad, whereas in you know schools that um, are underfunded, you barely even have computers that work, let alone you know have students being able to access something that they could even bring home with them. So that's just yeah. these are just some examples. Um, Abbott Elementary is a great show to watch if you want to understand under underfunded schools. Mm. Um, that's they, they do a really good job of of even though it's a it's a sitcom and it's a parody. Um, they do a really good job of of highlighting those those discrepancies there. I think for a lot of people who aren't in the education system, I'm one of them, especially someone who grew up in white evangelicalism. You know, you're just kind of taught that like that's not really a thing. You know, like mm -hmm. oh, the problem is that property taxes. I live in New Jersey, so property taxes are high here, but we also have some of the best public schools in the country anywhere, as far as I'm mm -hmm. my understanding. And you're just kind of taught like oh, you know, like nah, the, the the disparities aren't that great, or or I wasn't taught about redlining. I never knew about that till like four years ago, till reading someone's book. I'm like, wait, redlining? Like at some point our government and our housing industry intentionally like set things up to funnel people into different areas, right? Or white flight. So I think a lot of people, as we're reading books like yours and others, we go, oh my God, I had no clue that like these systems that were set up still have massive, massive ripple effects that are affecting people, including children today, right now. That's mm -hmm. that to me is just always like one of those moments where I go, right, the racism that we're taught doesn't exist actually does exist. And we're still feeling its effects today. And unfortunately, many children are, which I think should really give us pause for concern with how we navigate this stuff going forward. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to understand that pretty much any industry or system or just area of society that you look in is going to have its its roots in white supremacy slash systemic racism. I mean, you name it, we're more than likely going to be able to find. I was actually just wa- just looking at um, a really informative fa- uh, Instagram post the other day that talked about even a treadmill has its roots in racism because it was used um, as it was used as punishment in Europe. I can't remember for whom, um, but then it was adopted over here in chattel slavery and used um, as punishment in chattel slavery, like the 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 the, the treadmill. Like I, I have to look at the post again, but I was like, wait, what? Like, what? I'm sorry, huh? Like, <laughs> right, why is right. everything like this? <laughs> right. Like, why? It's almost like have you ever I can heard never the walk on a treadmill again now. I don't right. I, I, I do the stair stepper. Am I, am I in trouble now? <laughs> like, oh my God. Well, I, it is interesting because I've told people, like, when I was younger, there was this dumb game I would play called What Six Degrees with Kevin Bacon. Like, how, how many, how many levels in Hollywood can you get until you reach back to Kevin Bacon being related? to this and i'm like that's the same thing with like white supremacy the more i study it the more i'm like yeah almost anything i'm like one two maybe three degrees away from tying it back to some form of our country's legacy of white supremacy i think it's important though for this conversation how do you define white supremacy right this is like it's a very big term it's used often i think people try to claim it for their own take whether, whether to say look it's all about white supremacy ignore those people or to say a lot of things, maybe everything that we engage with at some point has its roots there. How do you define in the book white supremacy? What are we actually talking about? Well, it's important to understand that there's systemic white supremacy and then the byproduct of systemic white supremacy is cultural white supremacy. So systemic white supremacy is exactly the way that our society was constructed based off of um, colonization and chattel slavery and kind of uprooted from there, the structures, the ordinances, the the statures, the laws, pretty much all the things that have defined our society today and the way that we live, our economy, the decisions that have been made are all from the lens of or in the, the purposes of maintaining a supremacy of white people having control and power um, predominantly in us, in our society and control and mm. power with, with wealth, control and power with politics, control and power with um, positions of authority. And not only people being in the positions of authority, but whiteness being the position of authority. So being that in order to essentially be worthy of insert what you want to be worthy of here, whether that be in the school system or in your jobs or in the church or even in your households, you have to essentially put on whiteness in 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 order to even have a chance to be seen as that whether that be intellectual, whether that be um wealthy, whether that be uh worthy of a position of so to speak, you have to essentially put on that that cloak of whiteness in order to to be seen that way. Because again, it is whiteness that was put on this pedestal and it needs to in and everything that we do is, is in order to maintain this idea that whiteness is supreme, that whiteness is superior, and that anything else that is the opposite of whiteness is bad, is, is, um, is I mean, pretty much put, put any sort of negative characteristic there, right? So that's systemic white supremacy. We see that everywhere. We see that, like we talked about our schools, we see that in our housing, we see that in um who owns the wealth in our country? Who who are the um, top CEOs? Who are the top one percent? Um, who 
what are the the populations of the universities in our in our country, especially the ones that are considered to be prestigious. I mean, you can pretty much see that everywhere. You can see that in um, beauty and diet and wellness industries, what has been um, placed on a pedestal being the standard of beauty or the standard of wellness. Um, even our foods that we had deem um, healthy versus unhealthy. Typically, it's cultural foods that are uh, non-European or non-Eurocentric that are deemed as unhealthy. If you think about Latin foods, if you think about or Latinx foods, if you think about um, Asian foods, you think about Indian foods, African foods, things that are like carb, dominant carb, heavy, right? Plantains, rice, beans. Um, a lot of times we, we are, we're being told like, be afraid of those things. Those are going to make you fat kind of thing versus, you know, um, the Eurocentric plate being what's going to make you healthy and thin and beautiful. Eurocentric features. I mean, pretty much everything that is, that is white supremacy. Um, from there you have a culture of white supremacy because if your society was built in such a way that everything, every single decision, every single, um, structure was created to maintain a standard of whiteness, a supremacy of whiteness comes from that a culture of whiteness. Everything that we believe, the morals and the values and the customs and traditions that we carry as a society, um, are all from systemic white supremacy. So essentially, if you're thinking about, um, the way that we place perfectionism on a, on a pedestal that actually can be traced to systemic white supremacy for multiple reasons, everything from economic decisions to, um, again, educate the education system, all of that, the way that we, um, from capitalism, all those things have kind of created this characteristic of perfectionism. And then perfectionism, what, what do we say equals perfectionism? Well, the standards of whiteness equal perfectionism. So for example, if I'm speaking English a certain way, right? If I'm making sure that I rid myself of any sort of cultural dialect, that is the perfect way to speak, right? So it, it boils down to like the smallest little details. But if you look in those small details, all of it stems from whiteness, white supremacy being the standard. I hope I explained that well for you. I mean, we can go on and on and on and on and on because it's so vast, but. Well, I, I think that's kind of my takeaway as you're talking is like, whoa, this touches everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, uh, it can be overwhelming for people, right? When you're like, wait a second, I, cause that, that term white supremacy does invoke like a very negative, rightfully so like, mm -hmm. you know, like thought, like, wait, you're saying that everything that I've learned to inhabit, like even like my internal moral compass to some degree and like what I see as like good versus not so good or like, you know, yeah, like uh, like being proper with like my manners or something like that. Right. That's all tied to white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And then I start thinking like, well, okay, like, well, like what what is like what replaces that? Right. Like, okay, so if and I think you're right, by the way, that, you know, if like to quote the Lion King, you know, everything the light touches is like white supremacy, <laughs> essentially. It's like, OK, it's like, so what what in theory or maybe practically like what is it? What fills that void? Like, is there a different standard? Is that even a white supremacist way of thinking about it? Like, where, where do we go from there if everything that we're talking about, it has been affected by white supremacy in some way, shape or form? Well, one of my favorite quotes in my book is that we all get to be the standard. It doesn't have to be that there is one standard versus one not standard. I mean, of course, you know, when we think about when you mentioned like good versus bad or good versus evil, I mean, I think pretty much every single culture will be able to tell you that there are certain things that just aren't okay, like taking someone's life, for example. That's that's not a cultural thing. I think most of our moral compasses will say, regardless of what culture we were from and what part of the globe we're from, for the most part, we can agree that 
taking someone's life is is not good. So it's not about knowing that, okay, well, I have to have these standards in order for myself to be good. It's understanding that culturally speaking, all of the different cultures and all the different um ethnicities and, and and ways of being and ways of identifying, none of them have to be better than the other. Religion as well. And it's it's insulting, my personal belief and the belief of many others. It's insulting to say there's one religion that's better than the other religions. But we have this supremacy that Christianity is better is the standard and all the other religions are in other, right? Even in our society, the way that we place Christian holidays on give them more priority than we do other holidays. Think about that, you know? So it's 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 more so saying instead of one thing being here and one thing being here, we we just we do this. This mm-hmm. is we're 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 leveling it out and saying that my my way of living or my beliefs or my or my moral compass, so to speak, or or my values or my ethnicity or my race or my gender identity or whatever is not morally superior than yours in the way that you approach the world. We, there is room for all of us to be able to inhabit and be able to live and not feel as though because the way that I approach something or my body type or the way that I speak or the way that I approach intellect or the way that I learn about something, um, just because it's not following the what colonization has told us is is supreme and is better. Yeah. No, that that's that's all that's all done because colonization took over the world and said, no, we're better and you have to assimilate to us. You have to bow down to us and forced everyone else to take on this, this position of uh, what's the opposite of authority. <laughs> um, I don't know why I just lost my words, but this the opposite of authority. So right, whiteness took on the authority and everybody else took on the subordinate. Subjugation. Almost yes, or exactly. Like yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's, it's, it's essentially, rewriting that and saying no 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 that that was a mistake we shouldn't have done that we should make sure and i mean we should make sure that we are we're right here but in order to in order mm. so the problem is though when we say this when we say equality people will think okay great well then just forget all about it don't talk about it easy done okay great just throw racism away never mention it why right. this is so stupid why are we talking about this that's the opposite of that as well we have that is important to understand because hundreds of years of marginalization and oppression for certain groups of people and certain groups of color or certain ethnicities and things of that nature does not just go away just by not talking about it anymore. You have to also approach it with an equity lens and actually say, okay, now we have to do the work of undoing the harm. And that's where people also get, I think, defensive, confused, angry, frustrated, what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like, um, it's like learning a new language, right? Or, or even like just a, something new that you just had no, for me, I had no context for till like three years ago. I'm like, okay, wow, this is a different way of thinking about things. And what I thought was normal or like how the world functions turns out I'm still actually operating in a bubble, whether it's mm-hmm. theologically or culturally. And I think that, you know, what, what I always like I'm thinking through, because these are massive, complicated you know, things that we're swimming in with, like, how do we think about these things? How do we define those things? You know, is like this, I think where I struggle a lot is like the moral side of things, period, right? And like, okay, like, like you said, like, I think I can't imagine a culture not saying that it's wrong just to randomly take someone's life, right? I mean, I would agree there. But then there are other things where I'm like, okay, how do we think about like, um, 
other, other things that maybe I see moral that others wouldn't. Like I, I know that there are cultures out there today, right, who would practice polygamy. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I was taught that the Bible's clear about, you know, one man and one woman for life. Okay, so how do we navigate that? And like, what do I do with that? Maybe my moral compass would say, you know, I think for me, monogamy is kind of the way to go. But how do I then not become someone who's like, well, you know, if you are a polygamist, that's a problem. But also, I'm not sure that's the healthiest way of living, but I don't want to sound like a supremacist. So like, what do I do with that? You know, like, I think about that a lot where it's like navigating my own personal convictions and then where those lines are going to be compared to maybe how other people should or shouldn't live. One example of this might be, maybe that we could think about is, you know, at least for me, I'm we're a fully affirming organization. We're queer affirming. There mm-hmm. are a lot of other societies that live in the world that are not, you know, European centric that would be like, nope. Not good. Not a thing. I'm like, okay. Right. What I don't want to do is be like, well, hey, me as the Western white guy, let me just give you some new morals to start living by. You know, like you need to, you know, think about it this way. So for you, like, have you thought about that stuff and like how we how we navigate some of those tensions in our own cultural moment and then kind of how we think about it in terms of other ways of being? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of layers to this question, right? Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. there's the approach, for example, with leadership, right? And when we're talking about leadership, we're talking about government, talking about politics, talking about the people that make decisions for how we live our lives. Um, right. When it comes down to certain things, like, for example, being queer affirming, that is something that regardless of whether you and I are queer affirming over here and our neighbor next door is not queer affirming over there, you have every right to not be queer affirming if that's not what you want to do and make those decisions for yourself and have conversations amongst your family and things of that nature. But what you don't have the right to do is tell me that I can't be queer affirming or to Mm. make some sort of overarching rule in our world, in our nation, specifically in our society that says that no one's allowed to be queer affirming just because I say so. Right. That becomes more of like that supremacist mindset. So I think that's, I mean, that's, for example, you know, one one of the biggest, one of the biggest identifiers and, 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 um, beliefs that people hold near and dear is their religion, right? You and I identify as being Christians. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Muslim. I don't know much about those religions. However, I'm not over here saying, well, my religion is better than your religion and you don't have the right to practice your religion because I think mine is better. And let me just tell you all about my religion. No, 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 absolutely not. Instead, I'm going to be affirming. I'm going to be welcoming. I'm going to be loving. And I'm, and, 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 and that's it. Like, just stop there. Like it's, it's, it sounds, I'm, I'm making it sound a little bit like, more simple than than maybe what it is. But at the same time, sometimes I'm thinking, well, why can't it be this simple? It can mm-hmm. be as simple as minding your business. Like it really can be like, here's my business. I'm going to stay in my business and you can stay in your business. Yeah. And, and we really, there's, there's definitely more that we will agree on as humans when we keep humanity as the center, then we'll disagree yeah. on. The, pro- the problem is we're so focused on looking at all these little things that we disagree on that are really the, the smaller percentage of what makes us human than mm. what we can't agree on. We can't agree that everybody needs to eat. We can't agree that everyone needs clothes on their back. Yeah, You know what I'm saying? If we just stopped and focused on what we can all agree on and what we all have human beings have fundamental rights to, then, then it really could be that simple. And then everything else from the, the details of whether like I, you're, I'm, I'm with you. I believe in a monogamous relationship. I'm in a marriage. That's my choice. That's my conviction. But 
I am not going to judge the person that believes differently than me or tell them they need to live their lives differently. And I Mm. wouldn't, if I was in a position of power, make a law that says that you can't do that. That's not my right. That's not my right as a human being to take away their right to express themselves however they want to express themselves. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I think it it, it feels like it should be so much more complicated because, ah, my convictions, my convictions. They're just that. They're yours. They're yours. And that is just fine. You can have those convictions. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I agree with you on I think everything that you said. I I, I think where it gets messy for me is like when uh, when like harm starts getting in in the mix, right? Like mm-hmm. I think about you know one of the reasons why I'm not uh, super outspoken on our channel of like you know maybe militant Islam we can say is because I'm not a Muslim, and there are people right. that I know who are actually critiquing that work. So I'll be like, hey, high five, like let's keep partnering with it, and I'll critique the fundamentalists in my own tradition, right? Right. But, exactly. but any real, I'm not gonna say any religion, but we can look at our current moment in 2023 globally and say, wow, there are some religions right now that have some pretty radical factions that have done like are doing some major harm. Um, And then how do we navigate that? Keeping in mind that especially someone like me was steeped in the supremacy culture my entire life where I was taught, you know, um, that yes, my Christian expression is the only true Christian expression. It's the only true faith period. And anyone who won't assimilate into it is not really preaching a true gospel, right? Kind of Mm -hmm. what you mentioned before, where like you almost sound like you met white Jesus and we're like, wait a second, like I wasn't taught any of this stuff. And mm-hmm. I have met other people similar to yourself. Like I think about to me, Spencer Helms, another friend of mine who wrote the book Unleavened. In her book, she mentions how she grew up in the black church and then she got like what she thought at the time was being saved by white Jesus to the true gospel. And then realized like, oh, this is actually comes with a lot of baggage and a lot of supremacy mm-hmm. that eventually found her way out of the white church back into the black church community. And we talked about some of our, our major differences growing up and how different our worlds were shaped uh, by both experience and theology. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty new to my, my own decolonization process. I'm only a few years in. And so these are the questions that I'm kind of asking myself because I read your title of your book. I'm like, oh, we'll all be free. Love that. How a culture of white supremacy devalues us. Love that. How can we how we can reclaim our true worth? Amazing. What does it mean to reclaim true worth? And, and then it's sitting in the global context. How do I navigate maybe some of my own moral questions and find those lines between what I think a society should advocate for versus what I think is just for me to advocate for for my own personal goodness, right? And then how does white supremacy play into that? How is that shaped? how I see those things that, that, that I'm, I'm just being honest with you, uh, Caroline. I'm th- those are the questions that I'm just like in my current life navigating through as I'm realizing that more and more of this stuff is touched by white supremacy. It's, it's a mind twist to put it politely. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I wow. believe me, I feel you. I understand it. And it is a mind twist. And you know, the first part of your question, you talked about, you know, where do we draw the line with someone who's harmed with think with ideologies and things of that nature that are harming, you know, people that are harming others and in right. 100% I'm I'm with you on that, right? And I kind of take this as a as a twofold sort of thing. Because number one, we also have to understand that there's no way that we can ever just change the heart of everyone in the world. Like that's just not going to happen. And sometimes yeah. I just have to remind myself of that like there's just people who will not be changed that is that's the Lord's work and he will do it how he sees fit. But like, that's just not something that I can do. Um, It doesn't change my advocacy in advocating against Christian nationalism um, 
and white nationalism and the extremism in that way. Um, yeah. Are there people that are going to continue to cause harm in that way? Absolutely. Are there things that we can do when we get back to the humanity piece as as, as far as um, those that are making decisions in our society to ensure that that harm doesn't happen or that harm um, is prevented as much as possible? Yes, right. there are. You know, so it's kind of like when Ibram, so a lot of, a lot of Christians actually get really frustrated because they feel like, well, racism is a heart issue and it's not systemic and, right. and you have to attack it as at the heart and all this talk about systemic racism or advocating for, for changes and justice and blah, blah, blah is taking away from the gospel. And so they give authors like Ibram X. Kendi a really hard time who talks about the fact that racism is systemic first. It doesn't mean that the heart of somebody cannot be racist because they had to be taught that in the first place. And guess how they were taught that through the systems that created the racism that said, Hey, this is, this is, this is why we should hate those black people over there. And yeah. then because that grew, the, the hatred towards black people grew out of the systems that were constructed. Now, I'm not, yes, it's kind of like chicken, egg, who came first sort of situation. But for the most part, we can say these systems essentially grew that hatred more and more. They had to learn it somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, and, and while we can absolutely do the work to in our personal worlds, in our spheres of influence, to live a certain way that person by person we can help people have heart changes. And I've seen, I see it all the time. I see it with people that read my book and and are in learn from my content online that have said, I have had a heart change about this. Absolutely, that's important. But at the same time, for more of a, a drastic effect on things that is going to hopefully diminish harm caused by people that have heart things that, that need to be worked on, we do need to approach that from more of a systemic level. And from there, I say it's not necessarily about, you know, I mean, it depends on the situation. For example, of course, when we talk about harm, we're talking about say, Christian, white, Christian nationalism, white nationalism. Totally. That's something that no matter where you spin it, it's, it's harmful. So we, like I said, we may not be able to change that person's mindset about what what they feel in their convictions as far as their white nationalist ways of thinking, but we can stop them from being able to do that harm it, when it comes to legal processes, right? When it comes to politics, when it comes to laws that can be put into place. So that that's in, I think we're getting like so broad here. Um, and I think to bring it back to just like you yourself, like when you're thinking about like, what, what do I do? Like I can't wake up tomorrow and change the law against white nationalism because that's not, that's not my place in society. Of course you can advocate for that. That's what advocacy is for. That's what activism is for, is for, it's for influencing the people in power to make those changes. But then you yourself can begin to live in such a way that is decolonized, that is anti-white supremacy and, and, and dismantling of the white supremacy and essentially lead with those actions, lead with lead with that your heart it, itself, right? The way that you're treating yeah. people, the way that you are are in your organizations, in your family, in your church groups, in your your children's schools, the way that you are approaching things from a from a an anti um 
there, there has to be a person of power and a person beneath them sort of um, point of view, essentially. Um, then that's just one example, right? When you begin to live your life in that way, and I, I believe this is the same for people that are Christians. We think so much about evangelizing and, and, and telling everyone about the gospel. But there's also a way, the way that I was changed was when I watched somebody who lived their life and they had so much joy and I had to ask them where they got that from. And they were like, oh, it's Jesus. I'm like, oh, tell me about him right? It wasn't that they came to me and they said, hey, do you know about Jesus? And I was like, huh? What? I don't know who Jesus is, right? And I all of a sudden wanted to know. It was from me watching somebody and said, oh my goodness, the way that they live, they have so much joy. They have so much faith. They have so much confidence in even just in themselves. And I knew I didn't feel that way. So I looked at them and I said, well, I want what you have, right? I feel as though if we live our way, our lives in such a way that begins to be more decolonized and, and, um, and, and not centric towards white supremacy, then people are going to be like, well, you, you look, you, you're walking with a new bounce in your step. Like what's going on? Mm-hmm. You have kind of a mm-hmm. new, a new, a new freedom about you. Like tell, tell me what that is. Tell me, tell me about yeah, yeah. it. Right. And then you yeah. can begin. Oh, well, let me tell you, you know, I, I began to realize that the standards I was upholding myself to were rooted in white supremacy. Oh, da, 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 da. you see what I'm saying? So I think we, yeah. we can take the pressure off of ourselves. But like I have to, change the world tomorrow and I have to go write policies tomorrow that are going to make everything better and more so change the way we live our individual lives and and realize there's going to be a ripple effect from that. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely helpful for sure. And I think a lot of, I mean, first off, you mentioned, I mean, in in, in the summary uh, or like in like the, um, like the subtext, you know, how a culture of white supremacy devalues us plural. Are you like, when you say us, do you mean like including white people? Absolutely. Okay, so why don't you help us help the people? Because you're talking mostly to a white audience, right? Like mm-hmm. statistically speaking, you're talking probably to most people who are white, ex-evangelicals, rethinking evangelicals, whatever. And I think I, I, my friend Joe Lumen actually was the first person who was like, actually, Tim, white supremacy harms you too. I'm like, but I thought I'm the biggest benefactor of white supremacy as a white cis man. She's like, well, yes, but also. So do you want to maybe kind of give the people a little bit of a crash course into what you mean when you say Actually, white supremacy even harms white people, which might surprise some of us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love the way she said that. Yes, but also it's exactly that. You are the, benis- the, the biggest, excuse me, let me get my words right, biggest <laughs> benefactor of whites, a beneficiary of white supremacy, but you are also being harmed because we're all being harmed by it. How? Well, it's kind of twofold. We're harmed systemically because that we what we don't realize is the the way that we the, the way that we have normalized life today mm. right you think about modern day western society right is the way that we live is fairly new so mm. the the separation of suburbs versus city individualistic um capitalist minded was created within the last excuse me some of it the last 100 years some of it the last 200 years Right. Prior to that, the way humans lived was completely different for thousands of years. But how we got to where we are today is rooted in white supremacy and the desire to ensure that whiteness remains supreme in all areas, especially within the economy, especially within um, the school systems, especially within our housing, et cetera. Right. So all the decisions that were made to ensure that black people stayed in a certain area, like physically speaking and on the the hierarchy have negatively impacted all of us because it has created this individualistic society that is killing us all. It has created a capitalistic society that 
causes us to feel like we have to hustle and grind to and and push and shove each other out of the way just to have a chance at some sort of success and a chance to be able to afford a lifestyle. The way that the decisions that were made for our economy, especially the most recent decisions, our, our economy right now is based in neoliberal neo neoliberalism. Neoliberalism kind of reclaimed its spot in our economy in the 80s with Reaganomics, those decisions were specifically made as a white lash to the civil rights era. And right after um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Lyndon B. Johnson had created the Great Society. And that was supposed to work towards helping to um, create more of equity between the imbalances between the white um, the community and the black community. But that was quickly, um, well, first of all, that was that was quickly um, uh, criticized uh, by by pretty much the majority of the white community that said, hey, just because they now have to sit with us on the bus and just because they now have to attend our schools doesn't mean that we should be giving them any handouts or helping them in any way, shape, or form because now they're going to take what's mine. Even though yeah. the government had previously, um, before Black people had access to government help and government support, they had previously received pretty much every handout that the government had created from the, the New Deal era until that point. And we're right. able to create, um, you know, a, a, a sustainable life for themselves based on those, the, the, the help from various different bills for housing and education and, and et cetera, to create that secure white middle class. Well, as soon as black people came and, and were able to, to have some access to those things, because now segregation and legalized racism was now illegal. Well, now we don't want that anymore. So guess what? Get rid of it altogether. So now everyone is not, is, is harmed by that because what you're essentially saying, you'd rather do without You'd rather do without that support. You'd rather do without a social safety net. You'd rather do without um, 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 a, a, an economy that that works for you rather than against you. Then share it with your black counterparts, right? Mm. So as a result, everyone is harmed. I was I'm I'm currently reading the Some of Us by um, Heather McGee, and she talks about um, with with um, the the public pools that that are most public pools in our in America that existed in the the from the 20s through the 60s um no longer exist they've 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 been drained they've been covered up they've been built over why because of racism because as soon as black people were allowed to enter into those pools white people were like we'd rather drain this pool than share it with you so now we've yeah. gotten rid of something that was actually very central to the community atmosphere that most yeah. cities and towns experienced right Thus creating this, and that's just one way that created this very individual, individualistic mindset and, and culture that we now live in where we're wondering, we're looking around and wondering, well, where's the help? Why am I struggling so much? Why do I feel so inadequate all the time? Why do I feel like no matter how much money I make, I can't keep up? Why as a mother, do I feel like it's impossible to raise my children? Oh, because I'm forced to do it by myself, right? All totally. these decisions again totally. made because rather, rather be racist than be free essentially than yeah. than than benefit so that's like a systemic way that white people are harmed by white supremacy but it also again white supremacy systemic white supremacy then creates a byproduct of cultural white supremacy so you take those specific things that have happened and now you have this culture of feeling like you a bachelor's degree is now is 
you know, well, let me let me back that up again. Just being able to to um, graduate from high school and and go to go to a trade school or community college and be able to um, go into your your city and and work with organizations that were specifically there to help the youth and help everyone get jobs and such like that, such as the Urban League and this that and the other, no longer exists anymore. Now that's not enough. Now it's not enough to have a bachelor's degree. Now it's not enough to have a master's degree. Now you have to go into hundreds and thousands of dollars of debt in order to be able to feel like you can have even an entry level position somewhere. Right. So now you have this yeah. cultural mindset of I'm not good enough. I'm never good enough. I have to do more. I have to do more. I can't sit down. I can't sleep. I can't eat because I have to keep hustling. I have to keep grinding. I'm I'm not good. And cycle the cycle continues. Right. So that's still menting with excuse me me messing with you mentally. It's it's making you feel like totally. you are not valuable. You're not. You're only as valuable as you what you're able to produce and the currency you're able to put into society. And even as a cishet white male, you may be bene, be, uh, a, a major beneficiary of a lot of these things. You may even be be somebody who is privileged and able to. To say, well, I, I have the money. I've got the status. I've got the job. I, I am like, listen, I, I'm, I've got my, my, my life set. But look at yourself mentally. What? How's your mental health? How's your family structure? Are, yeah. are your children happy? Do you see your family? Right? Yeah. Do you? Right. Are you? Are you? Are you satisfied? Um, uh, socially, are you satisfied right. with yourself? Or are you so buried in work that you can't even tell what's going on with you? How's your physical right. health? Are you having heart problems? Right? right? Like seriously, all of this stuff is connected. All of it. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, in so many ways. I think a lot about even MLK's Poor People's Campaign, right? Where he's like, hey, uh, this stuff affects like working whites and working black people. Yes. Like it affects mm -hmm. so many people. And I think as you know, you look at the data, the explosion of like the ultra rich. Uh, yes, predominantly white people for sure, but at the expense of like an entire working class that is very much multi-ethnic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that feeling of having to grind away and just work your ass off uh, just to survive in a society. Um, and I do think, you know, the way I've heard it told to me, I think it makes a lot of sense is like white privilege is not necessarily that you're automatically rich or that you have it easy. It's just that the color of your skin was never a barrier to entry. Right. It was never one of the obstacles that you had to overcome. Sure. Maybe you had, to, you had to overcome other obstacles for sure. No one's saying that, but the color of your skin was not one of them. Right. right? right. I'm like, Ooh, that's, that's really helpful because obviously people can be poor despite their skin color. But when you look at the numbers, you can see how proportionally speaking, you know, there are marginalized groups that suffer economically more than, than maybe the average white person, whether that's generational wealth or it's the average wage that someone gets paid, um, where they live, the cost of living, et cetera. One other thing I, I was told about how white supremacy can affect everyone, including white people, that I also, this to me was like a moment, a light bulb moment. Again, this goes back to Joe Lumen. She's a dear friend. She goes, you have no culture. Like, are you yeah. are you really white? I'm like, mm -hmm. well, technically I'm part German, I'm part Greek, I'm part Italian, but I don't think of myself that way. Right. I just think of myself as a white guy. Mm -hmm. I don't know my Greek roots besides watching the movie 300. I might be like Leonidas one day with a six pack, which never actually happened, right? Or you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Like, like, like I don't have, I don't really have a a heritage that I am like proud of besides just being labeled a white guy which mm -hmm. puts me in the same kind of box with like all other kinds of people which isn't always bad but there's no for me i don't i just don't know my own background i thought that was pretty insightful where i was like oh right these terms of whiteness and blackness as well by the way like in culture i think really 
uniform people that have a lot of diversity, right? Like, I mean, I hate to say it embarrassingly, embarrassingly so, but I wasn't like super young when I realized that, right, just because someone's black doesn't mean that they have, that they, that they share the same ethnic background. There's different, <laughs> you know, ways of being black in the world, right? I'm like, wait, of course that makes sense. I just never thought about that because black or white, like which one is it? Right. So I think for me, that was another way that I realized that white supremacy just does so much damage to people, albeit they manifest in different ways, but it also harms the people who could also be in some ways benefactors of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also important to understand why that is. When you look at the history of how the white race was created, because a lot of the mm. subcultures um, that are now, I shouldn't say subcultures, but the different ethnicities that are now considered a part of the white race weren't when um, they were first coming to America when first immigrating to America. Yes. They were, um, right. you know, so that's important to understand and how, so for, you know, first of all, there was, there was a hierarchy there, not quite as low as, as black people. They were always on the bottom, sure. but there was still a hierarchy there and, a, and definitely mistreatment, um, of, many ethnicities, specifically ethnicities um, and cultures coming from Europe that weren't specifically considered like English, like you like um from from England. That that right. was the that was the definition of white in in the beginning that was that was being created. But in order to ensure that that whiteness became dominant, numerically speaking, there was a essentially like a campaign, like a push for like making sure like, you know what, actually let's 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 bring everybody together and make sure we kind of classify everybody as as white so we can make sure yeah. that numerically we have that dominance over black people, indigenous people, and other people of color in this country. And therefore an erasure of that culture. Because in order to and and of course when you're when you're faced with like this this decision of do I, you know, continue with with my culture and thus, you know, um adhere to the to the mistreatment that comes with that or do I assimilate into whiteness knowing that that allows me to kind of get a leg up, especially if you're looking at the way black folks are treated. A lot of people are like, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to choose that one over there. I'm going to choose the yeah. assimilation piece because why would I want to be treated right. like that? If I have the opportunity to, 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 to get on the other side of that and be a part of the, the, the higher part of that hierarchy. Um, but that, that was done intentionally. So it's not just a matter of, oh, it just so happened that we now have a loss of culture. No, no, no. That even so was done intentionally to ensure, um, racism, was able to, to continue and that white supremacy was able to remain dominant. This is a very important point that I think oftentimes is overlooked or just frankly used uh, to blatantly not represent the position well. Whiteness and blackness do not necessarily mean just someone's skin color. Or we're talking right. about about a way of existing. I mean, James Cone talks about this really well in some of his books. Of like, for you know, in his context, whiteness is representing really the the empire, the dominant force, and blackness is is the oppressed side of whatever class. He talks about in his book like how that can look different in different countries. Like in India, it might not be a white person oppressing a black person. It could be a different caste system of certain Indian people oppressing other types of Indian people. And right. he mentions there's examples of whiteness and blackness, and I think it's important because. Because sometimes, you know, people, especially right wing media, right, will use specific people who might have the have black skin, but really who have assimilated into whiteness and who can say the positions really well. And that they, they use that as a tokenization of, look, we have a black person here, so we can't be racist. Right. right. Even though they're actually doing exactly that. Yeah. So I think that, that that's an important, to, you know, maybe just clarification, because I, again, for a long time was like, I don't get it. White, black. I don't, you know, why is it all about the color of people's skin? That's obvious 
obviously racial consciousness is very important, but these terms can supersede someone's skin color and go both ways. Yeah, they absolutely do. And I think, you know, the the example that you just gave there was was perfect. I mean, blackness was essentially created, um, well, let's put it this way, blackness blackness was given characteristics, right? So when when we're thinking about the way that um there was a decision to enslave um Africans and the decision was made, you know what? Because, you know, and everyone likes to say, but, you know, there were white slaves too. And that's where the word slave comes from. Yes, there were. Yes. And then that began to die out for multiple reasons. Some of that being the Slavic um, people began to really set up defenses and, and sort of get themselves out of those situations. And the other part of that being the um, the the desire for um, the, there to be a direct access from like the Portuguese to the riches of those that were in the West African sub-Saharan era, area. And they didn't want to have to go through the Northern African middlemen anymore. And so when they decided to kind of see for themselves what was in that area of Africa and began to sort of explore that land, they created a narrative that was completely false about Africans and said they were black, they were ugly, they were dark, they were insipid, they Mm. were lazy, they were this, they were that, right? So that was the kind of the beginnings of this anti-blackness and these characteristics that were placed on essentially what, almost like the definition of blackness. When you think about what is black, you think of these negative characteristics. And that is what was carried through the transatlantic slave trade. That was, that was the justifier, um, especially and mind you, you know, these were also Christians, um, be it, be it Catholic or non, they were, they were Christians that also felt as though because they were lighter and, and brighter, so to speak, that they were, and, and they saw these, um, they saw Africans and saw that they were dark. They kind of also came up with the narrative of hol- being holier, being, being holy. And, and especially if they found Africans that weren't practicing Christianity, they use that as a justifier as well to say, Hey, you know, this is, this is part of our mission, missionary work to enslave mm-hmm. these people and to, um, and to, you know, essentially force them into our um, servitude because we get to do that because Christ gave us dominion over the earth. So that, you know, those characteristics didn't just stop there. That was just the root of them. That was just the start of them. And so throughout history, we have essentially learned and it's been essentially second nature to subscribe these negative characteristics to to what it means to be black. So even right. if you are somebody who is not black, say you um, exude a certain characteristic that someone thinks is a, a negative characteristic that someone thinks and associates with someone who is black, that is still, you know, going to subject you to a certain type of treatment or a certain type of judgment or a certain stereotype or, or what have you, right? So whiteness is essentially was created as the antithesis to that. So saying, okay, well, if all of these negative characteristics mean black, we have to create something that mm. and assign characteristics to what it means to be white and then make sure we adhere to those. So that yeah. would be the opposite of stupid. It would be the opposite of ugly. That'd be the opposite of um, lazy. That'd be the opposite of poor, right? So take those opposites, assign them to white people, and now you have what whiteness is. And and that's just a few core characteristics, but that that especially now in 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 modern times, as as things have grown, that um, 
that goes much deeper and much further in, in what we see now, which is bringing it back to your point of people politically that may be black people, they may be African-American or they may be um, an, another ethnicity of, of black, but um, they essentially have assimilated as much as they as much as they can because there's there's no way to fully assimilate into whiteness you're still a black man regardless or you're still a black woman totally. regardless that, that's not changing any um but you know assimilating your characteristics and your and your thought patterns especially your your, your way of thinking your political um viewpoints etc into that whiteness and then you have the, the tokenization that, that you that you mentioned so i hope that clarifies it a bit um to, to oh, be able to understand no, I, I think it absolutely does. I think it's a great way just to kind of end this part of the conversation and say, you know, friends, again, think about this stuff beyond maybe like what a lot of us grew up in, talk radio, right wing radio, you know, white centered theology in the evangelical lens. And it's it, that's important. Like it's important for people all across the board to be thinking about this stuff and to start understanding that that what what's going on today, the attack on terms like CRT or wokeness, these are not new ideas. They are mm -hmm. repackaged ideas. They're using different language but it's the same ideology that we can trace back all the way through really the founding of the country. Um, and that's important because a lot of us, especially as evangelicals, I'm not sure about your tradition, but mine was very ahistorical, right? I just didn't have any context. Like I, I was pretty much taught, yeah, back in the day, slavery was a thing. It was bad. Anyway, problem solved. So let's just move on. I mean, that, that that's literally the, the, the extent of what I was taught uh, mm -hmm. about my, you know, my, my history and mm -hmm. American evangelicalism, you know, Jerry Falwell was a hero of the faith. You know, mm -hmm. he, he started the moral majority over abortions rights, I was told, you know, which, of course, we know it now isn't the case. So mm -hmm. so a lot of people, I think, as we're waking up to this stuff and going, oh, my God, um, how deep does this rabbit hole go? Um, it's important that, you know, people like you are writing these books, you know, and people like I recommended Jesse Curtis to people, The Myth of Colorblind Christians. And it's like these books are so key for us to at least have an, a framework, a, a re- um, like our neurons have to be rewired, right? To, to, to understand that we're swimming in some pretty toxic waters. So because a lot of people, and I'm one of them, intentionally or not, most of my life, it was ignorant. We're complicit in maintaining right? Systems that uphold white supremacy. What does our repentance look like now? Like, what does it look like to repent and go the other way? Even if we weren't fully aware, we're, we still were part of that system, right? So what does it look like now that we know to start going in other directions? And I think your book uh, it, you know, is one of those pieces that's just so helpful for people to really understand what's going on so we can navigate a better path forward together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I know this this wasn't the point of your question, but or or the point of your statement fully. But I just I always find it really interesting to hear about the backstory of where someone's coming from, like you just mentioned. Um, because I'm learning, like I didn't know who Jerry Falwell was until like two years ago. So, but, but then I'm, I'm I'm meeting all these people that are like, you know, the, this was their world, and I was like, what is this like? So kind of the same yeah. in the, in a way, like I'm. It's so important to understand, like I'm learning too, and I say in the book, like. I am not above you. I am not someone who's like, I've been on this journey and now I'm telling you what to do and you mm. must follow what I say. No, no, no. This is a journey that we're all taking together. And it looks like yeah. a daily a commitment, a daily repentance. And, yes. and sometimes it's going to be a twice a day repentance because you're <laughs> gonna do it again. You're gonna, you're yeah. gonna perpetuate whiteness and white supremacy. Um, 
again, because it's normal. It's what's normalized yeah. in our society. It's, it's conditioned in our, it's literally the way our brains are wired because it's not just our generation or anything like this. This is deeply rooted. So when we understand how deeply rooted it is, you know, do ha even though, yes, like this work is important and, and, and the repentance and the, and the, and in, ch in changing behavior and changing your frame, your framework and the way that you think and approach things is, is, is vital as, as, as cliches. It sounds like you do have to give yourself a little bit of grace too, because you do have to understand like you're, you're rewiring something that is, is not just conditioned within your lifetime. It's not just wired within yeah, your right. lifetime, but, but right. wired from generation upon generation upon generation. And we yeah. are, you know, one of the first generations to really say, hey, let's not just attack this particular sector of racism or particular, you know, um, sector of, of, of society or, um, or this particular injustice, but let's actually realize just how deeply this is our society as a whole, our system as a whole, system wide, yeah. and begin to do the work to dismantling that system. Um, yeah. and, and that is unprecedented. You know, and um, and and it's it's a big undertaking, and it's it's not going to complete in our lifetimes either. Like we also have to understand that too. Like we are humans; we want to see like immediate results. And in my book, I do explain some ways you can yield some results that you will be able to benefit from, especially within yourself um, or within your immediate spheres of influence, within your family, within your organizations. But as a whole, these are things that are going to take more generations in order to get to that yeah. point of undoing right. just as yeah. it took us generations to get here as well. So, yeah. you know, I think I always want to make sure that listeners and readers understand, you know, two things. One, like take a step back, like you don't have to save the world tomorrow, you know, focus on some of that work within yourself and just take it a day at a time. You know, we are doing this together. You know, my position as someone who wrote the book is, is not better than yours. It's just, I just am sharing my journey with you and I'm inviting you to come along with me. Um, and, and that it's, it's not something that again, we won't see tomorrow, but it doesn't mean that the, that the work that we're doing is not going to yield fruit and, and yeah. just, keep pushing, even if it feels like you're hitting your head against the wall. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Friends, the book is We'll All Be Free, How a Culture of White Supremacy Devalues Us and How We Can Reclaim Our True Worth, written by Caroline Sumlin. Caroline, it was great having you on. The book is available everywhere. Are you online? Are you on yeah. threads? Now that, that's the new cool thing. Are you on Instagram? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to say the T word because you know, Twitter is so bad these days, but where can folks find you? <laughs> I'm all of the above. I'm on Instagram. Um, that's where I've been following you forever on Instagram. So I'm on Instagram at Caroline J. Sumlin. Um, I'm on the threads, the thread. I would, yeah. what is it? What is it now? What, what are the cool kids saying? Are we threading? Is it? Yeah, I don't know. Is I that what know. it is? But I am on threads. It's the same thing, obviously, since it's Instagram. It, actually, Twitter is the same as Caroline J. Sumlin. I am on Twitter as well. Um, and I dabble, I dabble in TikTok. I dabble. Oh, I dabble. TikTok, listen, as a content creator, here's what I'll tell you about TikTok. I hate TikTok. <laughs> I'm, I'm never on it. I'm never on it as a consumer, but as far as a content creator and an organization, 
it's been one of the biggest reaches for us. We have the most followers on TikTok. Really? We just hit 100,000 as of this recording. That's yep. amazing. Yep. Now, yep. See, that's you, the opposite you, for me. I can't get nowhere on TikTok. Nobody well, watches my stuff. <laughs> it takes, TikTok is like playing, friends, by the way, this is free advice. If you're a content creator out there, you're welcome for this. But TikTok is like playing a, jack, uh, a slot machine and it, it's much more per video than per account. So you might have a video that will do crazy good and have some that just tank. If you look even through my own video accounts, a lot of them do like, like 1,400 views, 5,000 views, but then one might do like 100,000. And then if one goes that big, I've gotten in one day before 5,000 follows in one day. Wow. Now that's, it's rare, okay? That that doesn't happen often, but TikTok wants you to kind of always make content on there. But if you can break through on TikTok, you will have one of the biggest audiences, not even a question. Mm, that's, I mean, I, I know, I feel like I know this is how I be trying, but <laughs> I'm also with my kids <laughs> like all the time. And so it is harder for me. So it's easier for me to whip out my phone and do a little tweet where I don't have to have like my, you know, like, yeah, of course I know that you don't have to be perfect on TikTok, but it's also really hard for me to get a thought out when I have a, a child that's like, can I be in the video too? Can I be in the oh, video Oh, totally. Too? Can I be in mama, the video Mama, too? mama, mama, I'm talking online at TikTok, you know? <laughs> and they're like, who are you talking to? I'm like, yeah. you know, Instagram. They're like, what's right. Instagram? Like, you're too young to know. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, I try. I, 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 I be trying. Like, I have like 500 followers on TikTok. So, you know, follow me there because I do do some videos that don't make it over to Instagram um, as, yep. as well. So it's, it's, yep. I, you know, you can, you can put the little linky link there if you want. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Caroline, this was a great conversation. Of course, keep in touch. I'm sure we'll talk again. And thanks for your time. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. 